Pacific Northwest Sasquatch Shadows presents Something Cryptid This Way Comes. Hey everyone, thanks for stopping by. Today we have Tom Putnam. He's a writer, producer, director straight out of Los Angeles, grew up in Portland, Oregon, and we're going to be discussing his film, The Dark Divide, which came out in 2020, starring David Cross, Deborah Messing, and some amazing other actors. We're going to talk about the process of filmmaking. We're going to talk about his journey as a filmmaker. We're going to talk about the lava tubes in Mount St. Helens, where people have supposedly seen Bigfoot. It's going to be an epic interview. Please like this video, leave a comment, and don't forget to subscribe. Make sure you go watch The Dark Divide. It's available on Amazon, you can rent or buy it, or go to darkdividefilm.com where you'll be directed to other places where you can stream the movie. Well, welcome everyone. I'm so glad you could come today. This is a really special episode. I am honored to present to you a little bit from my dream movie, and that is the director, producer, and co-writer of The Dark Divide. This is Tom Putnam, and I'm thrilled that he's here today. Tom is a writer, producer, director, and actor, and you may recognize his work as a director and producer for a couple films, The Burn, Marwin Cole, Broadcast 23, and like I said earlier, The Dark Divide. Tom is a documentary filmmaker and also has directed many beautiful commercials. And I have to say, Tom, real quickly, that anytime I watch one of your Ford commercials, I, I get a tear in my eye. So you're doing fantastic work for them. Thanks, uh, man. Yeah. Are you, are, do you drive a Ford? I drive a Ford 150. I do. So you can Perfect. imagine just how it is. My first car was in when I was in high school was a 1975 white Ford 150. And now I drive the model that's 30 years older. So it's oh, that's of, amazing. Isn't that weird how life just comes together? Uh, so in 2020, uh, Tom's film Dark Divide was released and by far is in my top favorites, along with, well, The Shining, E.T. and uh, Never Cry Wolf. But uh, I have a lot of favorite films. But the film stars, uh, stars David Cross and Deborah Messing, amongst other fantastic actors such as David Kuchner and comedian Cameron Esposito, who I'm absolutely in love with. I adore her. Uh, I wish I could name them all. Tom wrote this film with Robert Michael Pyle, a well-known author and researcher and lepidiatrist. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll get into that process soon, but first, uh, welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you here. Hey, Russ. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, you are down in good old California. That's right. I am. Yes. Tom, real quickly, I have a whole bunch of questions I wanted to ask you. But sure. again, as we talked about earlier, if we get off topic, that's my favorite kind of, of chat. Can you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in suburban Portland, Oregon, and, you know, the 70s and 80s. And just the outdoors were a huge part of our lives. We basically spent every weekend uh, hiking, fishing, camping, and um I spent a lot of that time in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Southern Washington and um, then moved to LA to go to school, uh, ended up becoming a documentary filmmaker. Occasionally somebody lets me make a fiction film, which is awesome. And had just always, you know, missed 
those places that were so special to me. And now I have a son, he's 13 and his favorite things in the world are camping and fishing and hiking. And there's not a lot of opportunities to do that here. So it kind of helped me rediscover why those things were important to me. And then I read, uh, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. And then, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, a friend gave me Robert Pyle's book, um, where Bigfoot walks crossing the dark divide. And it takes place in the exact like trails and lakes and all the places that I grew up going to during it takes place a little bit after, um, I was there, but within a decade and a lot of the stuff he saw were things I saw in terms of the logging and its effect on the mm. wilderness area there. And it just, wow, took me back to that place and not just the wilderness, but that feeling of being out alone in the middle of you know this old growth forest and you hear something or you think you see something and you immediately, is that Bigfoot? You know, and, and <laughs> right. um, I love the picture he painted of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to jump into all of the Gifford Pinchot experiences you've had. Uh, I think you and I have probably very similar upbringings, which sounds very intriguing. Um, mine was more in the Northern Cascades area. Uh, I didn't do a whole lot down at Gifford Pinchot, but I was usually up between Stevens and Snoqualmie Pass. I'm sure you know those right there. Mm -hmm, and it divides sure. Washington in half. Yeah. So first of all, let's jump into this. Uh, how, what inspired you to enter the world of filmmaking? Um, I first wanted to be an animator, but I can't draw. So okay. I just started making short films and I uh, was always really interested in storytelling. Um, ended up going to school at uh, University of Southern California and getting a degree in film production and also a degree in journalism. And, you know, there's a lot that's similar in those two things. So uh, ended up making documentary films. I still, still do love them. And um, I like to think that my documentaries feel like fiction films. So it was sort of a natural with the dark divide. I kind of wrote it and tailored it specifically to make a feature film, but like a document, like a documentary. So kind of coming to it from the other, the other perspective. Well, and there's so many different topics that you talk about. And the nice thing that I, that about your film and your storytelling is it doesn't there's nothing preachy in the film whatsoever but it brings to the surface so many different things nature conservation logging as you said earlier native american approaches and I'll, we'll jump into that in a second but that to me when you take then you combine that documentary with that fictional if you will writing uh, I think that's what was so powerful about your film. And I keep pushing it on Instagram constantly because I want everybody in the world to see this. I really do. Thank I was, you. I feel like I was the first, I, I was following the announcements when it was coming out. Um, I, I wasn't a huge Dave Cross follower. I mean, I arrested development, watching him walk around in jean shorts, Daisy Dukes all the time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that was my introduction to Dave Cross and then Will and Grace, obviously with, with Deborah. But that to me is a powerful approach. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about the approach to the movie, why it's so appealing. Yeah. And I mean, I have my own opinions, but one of the things I like about Bob and his writing is he looks at things from every perspective and it's pretty hard to sit down with somebody, no matter how much you disagree with them, even now and not find things that you do agree on. That's um, true. Yeah. So we tried to get into that in the movie, but in a way that hopefully yeah, isn't like finger pointing and preachy. 
Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, so how do you go about researching and considering a topic for a film? Uh, I, I want to talk about clowns at the end of the interview, by the way. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, at the other end of that movie making right. spectrum. Right. Um, so with Bob's book, which is the first time I had, a, I had adapted a piece of nonfiction, it was, it's a pretty thick book and he deals with a lot of subjects and the book jumps around in terms of the chronology um, it was a really tough piece of material, but it was a really rich piece of material. And as I got to know Bob over the 10 years it took to get the movie made, I've set the first seven of which were like writing and rewriting and trying to figure out how to take this story and make it feel like a movie. I learned a lot about the rest of his life. Um, the film ultimately isn't just based on where Bigfoot walks. It's based on seven of his other um, books as well. So he has such a huge body of work. A lot of what I did was kind of going through that and putting a timeline together and uh, without giving too much away, there's some, he goes through some things that are about as serious as anybody can in any of our lives. And mm. it was, he was really generous to let me incorporate that into the movie when some of those things weren't in where Bigfoot walks, they were just in his personal life. Um, you know, learned and relearned a lot about Bigfoot and cryptozoology. Um, learned a lot about the Gifford Pinchot National Forest that I didn't know, even having spent so much time there. And uh, just worked really hard, I think, to try to ground the film in what it was like in 1995, which is when his true story and the movie take place. Do you, uh, when you create a film like this, and you meet new people and you, you, you know, I, I learned a little bit about you on IMDb. Obviously, it's where most people go. But listening to people, how do you go about listening to people and taking what they may tell you? And I know you've read a lot of Bob's books, but how do you turn that into something that motivates you to tell stories or what do you look for to create a unique story? Oh, great question. Um, for me, I get excited with something that introduces me to a world I don't know, helps me see myself in people I don't think I would be able to see myself in, and has a unique way of telling a story, a unique outlook on the world. Um, I've been lucky in that most of the films I've been able to work on have done that, certainly in the documentary world. And uh, Bob's book did that too. I mean, whether it's... Um, I'm working with people on a fiction film or interviewing somebody for a documentary, I kind of try to just shut up and listen. And I've found that the less, I mean, it sounds stupid, but like the less I say kind of the better things go. So um, like on dark divide, we, we had time to rehearse, which is such a like gift as a director. You don't always get that uh, with David and Deborah. And they knew their characters really, really well. They both talked to family members and really had done a lot of research. So when it came time to shoot, I, I basically would just sort of set up like the boundaries and let them go. And I, coming from the doc world, I don't do a lot of takes. I, I usually do like, I mean, on Dark Divide, most things you're seeing are one, maybe two takes if there's a camera problem. And that was really at first, I think terrifying for everybody else, but then they realize like, oh, wow, this is going to unfold once. And I think there's like an energy and an excitement. And when you see it, and there's a scene where David and Deborah are in bed together and it's a really important scene. Mm -hmm. 
and that sounds so sexy. Uh, there, <laughs> there, it's a serious scene. Yeah. And, um, you know, we did it one take from one angle, one take from another angle. And I, they knew that going into it. And I think it kind of creates that magic where the reactions you see from the other actor when somebody does something are a lot more genuine than in the second take or the third take, because they don't know what's going to happen. And they surprise themselves sometimes. And that's the part of filmmaking that's really exciting for me. Sure. I think a lot of people talk about how in filmmaking, the, the live feeling of theater, which is my background, gets lost a little bit because in the live, you, you're constantly feeding off that energy from an audience and you're playing off that energy. And that's one thing I love about theater. And I know in film, you don't always have that audience reaction, you know? And so I'm wondering if that has a little, if you see a little difference in that with, like you say, a first or a second take. Yeah, I... There's definitely the first take is always the most exciting for everybody. Um, and, you know, we made the, if you see the dark divide, oh my gosh, like every 10 seconds you're in a new, it seems like you're in a new dramatically different location. You're in a right. lava tunnel underground. You're in a rock field. You're up on, on the mountains, like above the snow line in a blizzard you're forest. Laser tag. <laughs> yeah. In laser tag. And, <laughs> right. um, but we shot it all in like 22 days. So, I mean, there, everything just was move, 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 move. And, um, but the goal was also to, you and I talked about never cry wolf. And, um, one of the things I love about never cry wolf that I don't see in movies a lot anymore, you just get to sit and soak it in and get a sense of what that's like. I mean, this is a movie about a guy who takes a six week hike. Like that's a slow meditative process. And even though we were rushing around, you know, between camera takes when the camera was on, I really wanted to slow things down. And if you watch the movie, there's some really, really long takes in the movie. Mm. And hopefully coming back to what you said about the theater, hopefully that lets you just kind of settle in and watch things unfold in a way that, you know, you're not going to get if you're watching like Fast and the Furious 12 Right, right. It's not the high adrenaline pump, pump, pump. Here we go. Cars flying out of planes type of thing. The, um, there's this one scene, and again, not giving anything away. There's this one scene where he walks out of the tent and uh, he looks up in the sky and he turns around and says, oh, that is beautiful. And all of a sudden something happens in the sky. And I find that moment almost, I know that is a short scene. That, that take is probably 10 to 15 seconds, if that. And what I love is that little take feels like an hour to me when I watch it. And I, maybe that's what's getting at what you're talking about. It really just draws you in because the cinematography is powerful. It's very powerful. And the way you captured all of the landscape, I it it made me proud to be a Washingtonian, if that makes uh, sense. It made me go, hey, everybody in the world, go see where I live because it's the best place in the world, you know? And It really and is. I should say Oregonian too because I, I you're just, you know, Portland's just a couple hours away from me. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I think that's powerful. If you're listening on the podcast, I encourage you, you can go anywhere on YouTube and type in the Dark Divide trailer. There's about 10 different people that have posted it, including REI, which is an amazing company that I know, Tom, you grew up with REI probably. Yeah. I grew up with REI. I grew of up course. going to Seattle to buy all the gear as a kid for my scouting trips. Uh, so let's, let's watch this. And this is taken directly from REI. 
I may have to edit this a little bit here. That's okay. Um, people can also, the trailer will pop right up if you go to darkdividefilm.com. Yes. yes, okay. So, Bob, have you ever been camping before? Yes, of course I've been camping before. <laughs> Bob's publisher can't wait to read the first draft of his next book. You've been talking about this for years now. Let's dial back on you being so miserable. I apologize, but my wife is... Alive. I'm alive. Go look for specimens. Get away from me for one. I love you. I love you more. Am I here? You are here. I thought it went this way. All right, I need to go this way. Bear with me one second, please. <laughs> hey, you the uh, butterfly guy? Well, butterfly uh, animals. Stop! Help! This is north. No, this is north. Oh, where's the trail? I'm lost. Get out of the way! Ah! Hey! You've been on the trail. I don't know. I, I guess I've lost track. Seems ill-advised to be hiking so long without a radio or rifle. What if you run into a bear? Why can't you see yourself as beautiful as I see you? She thought you were a Bigfoot. Do I look like a goddamn Bigfoot to you? So, you're married? I fell in love with her the second I heard her name, Tia Linnea. Linnea, like the little twin flowers. Yeah, of course. The only dangerous animals I've run into are your men. Well, you've been through an awful lot these last few years. It's only gonna get worse and worse till there ain't nothing left. I'll be ready. Beautiful trailer. When you watch that, Tom, do you just feel like you're there in those places again a little bit? You want you want the honest answer? I love yes. the trailer, but like every one of those locations was like a nightmare in its okay. own way. So I was like, <laughs> Oh, that was the that was the one where the gate was locked and we couldn't get in. That was the one where <laughs> it started to rain. That was the one where there was an electrical storm. That was the one where there was a mountain lion. Oh uh, my god! Oh, did you have some mountain lions out there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, right on. You, I mean, huge. I shouldn't say that, but they're big guys, aren't they? Yeah, mountain lions and bears was the biggie, and mosquitoes, which are terrible, but like they're not going to kill you. Hopefully. What time of year were you out there filming? Uh, May, June. May and June. Okay, uh -huh. so getting pretty warm. Yeah. You would think so, but um, our biggest problem was it was a really late winter. So um, a lot of the real locations were snowed in. So like every day after shooting, I jump in a car and like book up into, you know, one of the access roads to see if things had thought out enough for us to like shoot there three days later. Right. Did you shoot? I'm, I'm assuming you went and shot all the scenes where he's hiking and then the Giver Pincho at one time. And before that was the scenes with with uh, Tia and with, you know, going through the home and all of that. Was That's beforehand. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So I always find that intriguing shooting out of sequence. And uh, do you find that as a director to be confusing for you at all? 
Yeah, it's really hard, especially something like this, where so much of it is David's character by himself. Um, so, you know, we would have days where we would shoot a scene really late in the journey where he's sunburned and all cut up and bloody and he's got claw marks on his head. And I won't explain why right now, but, and then he gets all cleaned up and then he's like day one of the journey. And, um, that's really hard for an actor. Um, and that's certainly hard for me as a director, because you also are thinking about the shot design and how that evolves over the course of the movie. And so it's not just like a bunch of shots of feet and things, one of the biggest challenges for me is, you know, there are, there are outdoor movies and there are hiking movies, but one of my big issues with those is that it's just like a guy in trees, a guy in more trees, a guy in more trees. And I really wanted the look of the film to subtly evolve as, as the locations evolve. So I made, oh, I just threw it out. I wish I had it. I'd show it to you. It's like a bunch of eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper that unrolled to be like 10 feet long, where I literally mapped out the exact geography of the real hike and like where each scene was in terms of altitude and like uh, the foliage and stuff. So I could either shoot in those real locations or in the events where of some of them we didn't have access to, we could match those. So I would show that to David and everybody prior to shooting, like, hey, here's what happened before. Here's how high we are. And that was a really cool sort of a roadmap to kind of ha help me drop into the story and remember sort of where we were in the chronology. Well, and David's not from, David's from uh, Toronto, Canada. Isn't he Canadian? I think. He's from Atlanta. He's from Atlanta. Okay. And so he, he lives in, and he lives in Brooklyn and he, the guys, I, I, he says he's never been camping before, so, which okay. I would believe. And I definitely isn't going camping again after this, but. Uh, okay. Okay. I watched an interview. Uh, they did a live thing with he and Bob and Powell Books, and I went and watched that uh, quite a while ago. And fascinating, really fun to watch what he had to say about that. Uh, but do you think so? I know that what Bob will say is that he thinks that David's character was a little less adapted to being in the wilderness than he was. And he does come across that way. Sounds to me like you cast or who, he, the perfect person was cast in this role seeing as how David doesn't tend to be an outdoorsy kind of person. Did you find that to be a help or a hindrance? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, so yeah, Bob in, in reality is a pretty adept, very adept outdoors person. Although everything, every mishap you see in the movie really happened to him. You can read the book, but I think it's like, you know, a movie is based on drama. When you put a lot of those mishaps in a nine in a 99 minute movie it, it, it makes him look a lot less uh adept than he was um right. that's also a little bit of me in the film um i'm constantly sort of putting stepping in stuff and tripping over things <laughs> and well-meaning but then like getting yeah. into ridiculous situations and you know no, i don't think anybody wants to see a movie about a guy who's a perfect hiker and outdoors person um well, there's yeah. thousands of those out there already. Yeah. And I think, and David just like, he checked every box. Um, I knew going into this, it had to be somebody who had like a very strong humanity, could make us laugh, could make us cry, which he certainly does. Mm. Um, is really good with the phys physicality of it. Feels like somebody who should not be out in the wilderness. 
Um, and also somebody who knows how to keep people looking at them. I mean, so much of the movie is just like David's face and coming from his stand-up background and the variety of films he's in. I mean, from Arrested Development and Alvin and the Chipmunks movies to, you know, Steven Spielberg films. He, right. he has so much range. And I think it's to surprise the audience too with what he can do because he does stuff that I don't think people have seen him do before. It's not the David that I'm used to seeing. Yeah, really at, all. Isn't at all and um and jumping into i was gonna just kind of transition into this a little bit and then i want to get back to what we were discussing but talking about um the incredible cameos that you have here uh cameron is fantastic one of my kids looks up to her like you wouldn't believe oh uh, cool yeah it's very cool and then uh deborah my gosh to see her uh, it just watching her morph do you know what I mean? Because I, I, again, don't want to give too much away, but watching how she plays this character, it brought back for me, because we've all been affected by this, it brought back for me a familial, um, a, a familiar feeling of, you know, a, a family member that went through something similar. Did you find bringing that touch of humanity into a film where I would say, I, I wouldn't say the majority, I'd say at least half of it, maybe majority of it is based in the outdoors. What are those parallels you found? Yeah, so Deborah is, you know, amazing actress and everybody knows her from Will and Grace, but they forget that she was uh, in Angels in America and like right. really highly trained, incredible dramatic actress. And she plays Bob's wife, uh, Tia, who's a real person and amazing person and a lot of people d don't realize it's deborah if walking into the movie until they get to the end credits i mean she really is transformed she talked to all of tia's kids when you see her in the film a lot of the jewelry and clothing she's wearing were tia's oh, um, amazing she really disappeared into that into that role um and that was really exciting for me because she does have a comedic background. So she, like David, she really understands not just how to play a well-rounded character that sometimes you like, and sometimes they do things that are uh, unlikable, but you really like feel the humanity. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever felt like you're in a tunnel? The sides are closing in on you. You're unable to escape the overwhelming feelings of unhappiness, anger, worry, or fear. I have, many times. Over the years, I've tried to solve my own problems, lean on myself, and suppress the depression of my past and the anxiety of my future. But then I decided to do something about it. And while I'm still a work in progress, I know that without getting help, those invisible monsters would reach for any opportunity they can to consume me. They still do. But with online therapy, I'm conquering those monsters. And it feels good. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Maybe you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. 
it's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And here's a special offer for Something Cryptid This Way Comes listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash pnw. That's betterhelp.com slash pnw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Did you select the music for this film? Um, so uh, one of the guys involved with the film had a connection to the Averett Brothers okay. record label. So uh, when you watch the film, most of the music is by the Avet Brothers. And uh, then there are a number of songs from an amazing uh, Choctaw singer who lives in Samantha. Oklahoma named yeah. Samantha Crane, who's blowing up now. Her music's in uh, reser- uh, Reservation Dogs. And her voice is just amazing and then there's uh music by a number of other artists including uh chris novoselic from nirvana and it was really we were really lucky because a lot of these people really responded to the story they loved what we were doing with it and they agreed before we started filming for us to be able to use their music and as a director that's amazing because every scene that you see, I shot knowing what the piece of music was going to be. So I would be listening to it from the location scouting to driving to set to while we were filming. And it really helped inform like the rhythms of each scene. Mm-hmm. Um, normally you get the music at the end and then you have to kind of recut a little bit and you're always like, Oh, it's not as good as the, right. as the, as the stuff I was hoping I would get. Um, and this was like one of those just like miracles to get yeah. all of this great, great music ahead of time. As a, as a musician, I try to pride myself on really discovering unknown types of singers, uh, bands, all that kind of thing. And a Dark Divide opened up a whole new, I, I know there's a genre, people call it folk rock, all that type of thing. I call it mountain music. I call it- Oh, modern, I like that. I call it mount, modern John Denver kind, in a way, um, but with, with some real beautiful stories behind it. And I, I pull out my uke and I play the Avett brothers all the time. I, love, oh, cool. I just love jamming to them. Um, and Samantha Crane, whenever I go hiking, I try to do a, a, a solo hike at least once every two weeks, if I can get away. Um, and it's, it's Samantha's music that's pumping in my ears. If I have headphones on, usually I'm just listening to the wilderness, but if I need a little something, it's, it's Samantha. So Tom, I wanted to jump to a, another topic that's really close to me and, and personal to me. And that is the Native American um, aspect of this. And I know, I, I'm so sorry, I forget the actress's name, but she's fantastic. Um, Kimberly she, Guerrero. Yes, thank you very much. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I forgot her name. And then Dave Ketchner is in there and Dia uh, Diami Thomas, I believe is there. And mm-hmm. what, a, what a powerful scene. And so much comes out during this one scene. Uh, and if you watched the trailer, you saw them creep up on david uh, with a with a gun (laughs) do i look like a goddamn bigfoot to you so that's a that's a great scene i wanted to ask about why you decided to incorporate this part we're talking about the native terms for the for the mountains and, and all that type of thing well one of the messages of bob's book that i hope we incorporate in the film is the idea that you know, it's a, it's a, it's a book that deals with Bigfoot, but what it really is, is a message that at the end of the day, what Bigfoot represents is almost as important as whether or not Bigfoot really exists, which is our connection with nature and a link back to a time when we were a part of nature 
more and not as like separated from it. And Bob's book really got into that in depth. You know, the Yakima and Cowlitz tribes in particular, who we worked with very closely on the film, have lived there for untold generations. And I wanted to share their perspective on the forest, which I think is a very powerful perspective. And one that I think people are finally starting to come around to after the fires that we've been having, a uh, number of the places we filmed in the movie burned uh, last year. And the way that they take on forest management and the way that they view their place in the ecosystem there was so powerful. I, I, I just, I couldn't imagine not doing that. Um, so when we were developing the script and casting it, we worked very closely with uh, the Yakima Nation, the Cowlitz Nation, and the Warm Springs Nation, uh, not only to cast some of the roles, but to make sure that the scenes we were putting, you know, they read and gave notes on those scenes and then looked at the cut scenes to make sure that we were portraying them uh, accurately and in a way that they're not used to seeing. I mean, there's a pretty narrow, pretty narrow bandwidth for like how Native Americans are portrayed in movies and TV shows. Um, and we wanted to do something that was very different um, to the point where that whole big scene around the fire, we actually filmed it. Um, we filmed that on a sacred land for the Warm Springs tribe. So we went to them and they read, they read the scene and they gave us permission to film there. So I did a ceremony each day before we filmed to honor the spirits in that area. And it, I don't know, I think it really kind of felt like a very special place to shoot that particular scene. Um, so we tried to, tried to really incorporate that. And I think that's also a turning point for Bob's character in the film because he starts to reevaluate how he sees his role in nature. He goes into the film very, you know, he talks about it early on in the film in the bookstore scene that he's an observer. His job is to observe. And he slowly starts to realize he's not an observer. The story of the forest is his story. And that scene is like a big turning point for him. And then we also, it was important to me to show Native American people in a leadership role, which is why there's a whole big sequence with a, where he stumbles into a logging camp. And Gary Farmer, who's a legendary right. native actor, um, he plays the foreman there. And he's definitely like in charge of that scene. And I thought that was really cool too, to see someone in a role that wasn't like, this has to be a native actor. And um, so hopefully that kind of just informs the whole texture of the movie. Well, and that's a great transition into my next question was about that scene where you have... Uh, Bob's character um, come up to the foreman and you know they, he's just been if you will he's he's having a conflict with the logging community and then they have this back and forth dialogue that is very powerful and it's it's fairly quick but it hits some very major topics and something that's really a hot topic up here in the Pacific Northwest um, what caused you to bring up the the topic of logging should it be should it not be and i know you could have gone you can talk for years on that i'm sure but um you know what why did you bring that that dialogue into this into well, this film so when bob's book takes place in 1995 right 
clear cut logging is still huge. I mean, still happening, but it was, mm -hmm. was much bigger. That was right in the middle of the spotted owl, uh, news story where essentially for those, for those listeners or viewers, not old enough to remember, um, the spotted owl was an endangered owl. And if the logging companies were allowed to proceed with their plans, they would have wiped them out. So it was one of the early waves of like environmentalists having direct action and sabotaging logging equipment. And then loggers getting very aggressive because these people all live in those areas. These loggers live there and they fish there and they hike there and they enjoy the woods as much as anybody else, but they also need to make a living. And you know, I like to think of myself as pretty progressive and definitely not a fan of clear cutting. Um, that's something we could talk about for hours. Sure. <laughs> but um, Bob wrote a book called Wintergreen that really is a thick book and it deals with that. And he talks about how loggers will like show up at his house and track him down to get their copies autographed and say like, Hey, thank you for share for like giving a more well-rounded perspective. And you don't walk away from that book saying like, yeah, let the logging companies do whatever they want. But it reminds you about how the people that work there do care about the forests as well. And it was a really interesting scene to do because it reflected a lot of what was in the book in that David's character goes into that logging camp with one idea. And he doesn't change his mind when he leaves, but it helps him understand that there's a lot of perspectives and things aren't as just simple. The solutions aren't as simple as he would have thought mm. going into it. This hit me because one of my, one of my friends is an elder in the Yakima tribe. And uh, he also was with a, a forestry service of sorts. And we would go out and he would show me in old growth forests in the Cascades. And we went out this, uh, this particular time, it was about a year ago. And we talked a lot about the timber on the ground. And we talked about the old growth trees. And he liked to um, mention the kindling, you know, if, if you will. And so you have a native perspective who's talking about what happens when the forests aren't maintained. And it, I did not expect that. I really didn't. Um, I grew up just thinking all logging is bad. We should leave all the trees alone. I didn't consider how it would affect economy. I didn't consider how it might affect the nature. So you're, the way you had those two sides of the dialogue, if you will, and, and I shouldn't polarize that dialogue, but it does kind of sense that one's from- Naturally one polarized. Country. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that was a very powerful scene. And I would suggest people watching the film that they really look at both sides open-mindedly I think it's pretty powerful. Uh, well, in the movie, I want to be really clear. This sure. is not a prologging. No, movie. no, no. But like, if you see that scene, that's why I had, there's that big giant wide shot at the end. Like that's a real working logging site and it's awful. And I mean, you know, what we think of as forests in Oregon and Washington are mostly just tree farms. Now um, there's not the biodiversity that a healthy forest needs. Um, so, I just, I did think it was important to share that perspective and for people to understand there's like a cause and effect and collateral damage with like any, any decision you make. Yeah. And leaving as we're learning, I work a lot with firefighters in my other job as a documentary filmmaker and our fire suppression, um, uh, our fi the way that we handle 
forest management and deal with forest fires has been a disaster. And you see that by how the fires are getting worse every year and global warming certainly plays into that, but also how we manage our forests and don't realize how fire can be useful has, has created a lot of the problems that we have now. Yeah, absolutely. And then you see people, you know, just kind of ca- throwing caution to the wind that are not respecting nature and are you mm-hmm. know, having gender reveal parties, <laughs> you know, in a, in a dry field where things blow up and, and causes issues. Um, do you, I have to ask about the lava tubes. Uh, my younger brother and I are hiking at Canyon next weekend. And, uh, oh, I, actually, wow. I, I summited Lewitt, Mount St. Helens. I summited it, um, last year in the snow with my other brother. We got about half a mile from the top and then had a whiteout and we wanted to survive. So we turned around, uh, but, <laughs> but, um, That's good. we're going to hit Ape Canyon and I'm very excited because, this is where kind of in the area where this film takes place a little bit. It's, it's a little further north um, and to the east. But I wanted to ask about the big red lava bed. And I know there's a chapter in his book where Bob talks about getting lost. Uh, he, he, it's he, everything. It's a labyrinth and he turns around and it's it's incredible. I don't remember. I think it's like 2000 miles of tubes or something like that or 200 it's miles. Crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. So there's this whole big sequence where he gets lost in the big lava beds. And that's every friggin' shot of that is in the real location. There's a thing where he's under these natural bridges and he's looking at the moss. That's the exact natural bridge and moss that he describes in his book. Um, the big lava beds are like, imagine a thing that was miles square miles of lava that over the years trees have grown up but like you walk around and every time you step you hear like boom 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 because it's hollow underneath that's where where there are mountain lions and bears and mosquitoes it's and everything is like razor sharp right it's pumice so bob got lost there we felt we stupidly filmed decided we'll we'll film there and it was (laughs) it was hard it was hard and then that so there's a whole sequence where he goes down into the lava tunnels and gets horribly lost and some very scary stuff happens. Um, and it's also a moment of sort of his dark, you know, to have a little Joseph Campbell, like his yeah. darkest hour and his rebirth and all that good stuff. And those are all filmed in the real lava tubes underneath the big lava beds. Um, we, there were a number of issues because a number of the lava tubes have, um, bats in them and you cannot film in those because we can bring in a uh, i forget what it's called it's like called a white nose disease or something that can kill the bats so we found this mile long well let me just explain to you okay so the lava the lava tube where you get that we filmed in which you could like park a 747 in. it looks like the lair from like a bad guy in a james bond movie so cool batman's cave (laughs) exactly so you drive deep into the gifford pinchot and you're following directions. Then you turn down a dirt road. You drive miles down this dirt road. And then there's a gate. Nice new gate with like a combination lock on it. Put the combination and you open the gate. You drive like miles more down this private road through the trees. And in the middle of nowhere, there's an A-frame cabin. Looks like something out of Evil Dead. And you go in the cabin and it's a like small cabin. And there's a living room with like an old tube TV and a hot plate and a musty bed and stuff. And then you open this closet door. And there's this industrial stairway leading down like 150 feet into this what? guy's loft. It's like the full-on Scooby-Doo. It's crazy. Holy cow. So we 
so we, the guy who owned this property, his grandfather had like fallen through a hole and discovered it. So it's like all their private property. So yeah. So we filmed this whole thing in there. That was all shot in one day. Very gnarly shoot. Like you'll see stuff with like all this stuff floating in the air. That's all. That's not movie magic. That was all in there. And no way. Can, know, I, case, ask, can I ask about the hieroglyphs? Uh, the hieroglyphs uh, we added digitally. They're real uh, native hieroglyphs that we then superimposed because we obviously didn't want to paint in the in the lava tunnel. Right. And um, yeah, occasionally you'd hear like a giant rock fall somewhere in the lava tunnel. Oh. And, and it's also freezing cold. It's like in the it's at most 50 degrees, probably in the 40s. And that whole sequence, David's just in his underpants. And here he is like running around and falling in this thing where everything's razor sharp and it's wet and freezing cold. And it was, it was a lot, man. Um, so yeah, so those hieroglyphs we added digitally, that story is, um, a combination of Bob's story and a story that's, uh, in his book that's told by John Muir's, uh, guide, who was a famous soldier and what happened to him when he got lost in the same lava tubes. So, so when he was lost, yes. Yeah, yeah it's an intense. It was it was a intense scene to watch and it was a very intense scene to make. I think there's a This episode is sponsored by Pride Counseling. We live in a world of mystery, of unanswered questions, of constant bombardment from endless opinions, and mostly from questions within ourselves. I've taken advantage of online therapy and have seen the benefits as a professional, a father, a spouse, and a friend. And without the help from online counseling, I would most likely still be stuck in the ruts of uncertainty and bleakness. We all struggle with our own true nature at one point or another, or we know someone who has. Therapy can be the difference between happiness and overwhelming darkness. Pride Counseling is affordable, private online counseling for the LGBTQIA community. You can get access to licensed, trained, fully accredited counselors and therapists that are LGBTQIA friendly. These counselors and therapists have at least three years of experience, at least 2,000 hours of hands-on experience, and are qualified and certified by their state's professional board. All you need to do is go to pridecounseling.com slash pnwpod. Fill out a questionnaire, get matched with the counselor who is perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. It's more affordable than in-person counseling. And if you can't afford counseling, there is financial aid available that you can apply for. You get unlimited 24-7 messaging with your counselor, meaning you're connected with a counselor the entire time via your phone or computer. And you can schedule live video, phone or text sessions with your counselor as well. With Pride Counseling, you're not wasting time traveling, and if you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch. Best of all, you connect from the comfort of your home. Half the battle of getting into counseling is getting to the counselor, and Pride Counseling eliminates that hassle. Plus, a lot of people in the LGBTQIA community are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person out of fear of discrimination, or perhaps they just don't have access to a therapist that specializes in what they're struggling with. With Pride Counseling, you can connect with an LGBTQIA counselor from anywhere. And as a special offer to Something Cryptid This Way comes, listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at pridecounseling.com slash pnwpod. That's P-N-W-P-O-D. Again, that link is pridecounseling.com slash pnwpod. Thank you to Pride Counseling for sponsoring this podcast.
intense scene to watch and it was a very intense scene to make. I think there's a, there's a sequence there. It's one of my favorite in the film where uh, without giving too much away, Bob thinks this is the end. And we, it's one of those long takes where we just sit and watch him kind of fall apart. And there's a lot of acting happening there, but I know he, <laughs> he was pretty scared too. Sure. So it's uh, uh, that's one of those things where the line between documentary and reality got blurred a little and, bit. And you said that was a one day shoot. Yeah. All that lava stuff we shot in one day, which was brutal. I suppose you're not dependent on the light of day for filming when you're down at a cave. So that may be easier. But you need some light. So it's like, how do we like sneak lights in so you can see this big giant cave without it feeling lit, you know? Um, yeah. I have to tell you, when I, when I watch that scene, uh, the, the thing that gets me is uh, I always thought it, you must have used some studio. You must have used some green screen, if you will. And you're telling me now that that was all filmed right in that cave. And it's huge. Like you were saying earlier, uh, that's mind blowing. And I love that you were able to avoid the studio for that scene. That, that oh, me- yeah. That's movie magic. That is the real magic. It's the real filming. I mean, we had so, so little money to make this movie. Um, so it was just about, we got to find real locations and somehow drag everybody out there which is like no easy feat. even on a tiny film, you're talking about like 25, 30 people. Sure. Speaking of funding, did you find it difficult when you pitched this film because <laughs> Bigfoot is around and was, a, it wasn't the main topic, but it is a topic. Was that difficult? Did you get people slamming it down? So I've written, I've probably written 30 screenplays. I've been lucky enough to sell a few of them. Um, and I swear to you, every script I write, I'm like, this is my best. This is the best script ever. This is the one. (laughs) And this was the script that I wrote and was just like, why did I do this? Nobody's (laughs) going to want this. Of course, that's the one that gets made. Um, Yeah, nobody wanted it. I mean, it's like a period piece about a shy butterfly expert who goes on a six-week trek by himself through the wilderness (laughs) after after something very heavy happens. Oh, and it's got Bigfoot in it and butterflies and stunts and like weather issues. And he hardly, he doesn't talk for like 38 minutes to the movie. Uh, yeah. Everybody was like, well, that's the least commercial thing I've ever read. Um, but after just like at that point, I want to say like eight years of just like hustling it. Um, uh, my friend, Jory Weitz, who's uh kind of a legendary casting director. He cast Napoleon Dynamite and Blade and work on, worked on Dances with Wolves and Edward Scissorhands. I randomly ran into him and we went for coffee and got to chatting about the script. And he was like, hey, can I read it? And I sent it to him and he loved it. And he became like the first cheerleader when I was just like done with it and encouraged me and helped me do a big rewrite on it and just was like, let's figure out how to get this made. Let's, this is a great, this is going to be a great movie. And he was the like spark that started it. And after a couple of years of us trying to build momentum with it, I met um, Ryan Frost and Aaron Boyd and they have a company called public house. That's done some really great movies. And we met for lunch and they said a thing that nobody ever says, which was what's the craziest, most difficult project you have. And I was like, oh, I have the project for you. And I gave it to them and they loved it. And um, 
that was the thing that really started the fire under it. And so with their partnership, we were able to start going out to actors and we got David and we got Deborah and then the movie happened. I mean, it was 10, it was 10 years. That's a long time to yes. work on something. Yes. Um, and I also got to give credit to Bob Pyle. Like he hung in there and he believed in me and I'm sure he never thought anything was ever going to actually happen with this. Uh, but he seems like, like the most genuine kind person, just oh, a really good dude. Yeah. And like David is like my height. So he's like a smaller dude and stuff, but like the real Bob Pyle, it's like talking to Gandalf. He's like six <laughs> foot. I don't know what, and he has this big voice and this big bushy beard and yeah. this walking stick. Um, yeah. He's just this gentle giant of a guy. And, you know, he came to set a couple of times and he would, he would cry when he saw real mo- Imagine how weird that is to see like some of the most important moments in your life being acted in front of you with actors who you yeah. recognize. And like, like when you see, I talked about that bedroom scene, all that artwork is Tia's real artwork. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a yeah, lot. It gives you shivers. It absolutely gives you shivers. Uh, I, I just, as a quick side note here, when he's sitting on his porch, Bob is, and he's typing, um, he's, he's typing on his little word processor. This is 1995. I was my sophomore year at university with the exact same word processor, or it looks exactly the same. So I feel his pain when it comes to writing on a word processor. That was before we had all these computers and we we're squishing them in our dorm rooms or fraternities. So I love that. I love that you bring in that touch of the, of the mid nineties and how it felt. And I do, oh, I can imagine writing it and then watching things change in our world over those 10 years. Did that have any effect on the rewriting process at all? What's happening in the world? Or did you try to stray true kind of to that first feeling? No, it kept evolving. It's, am- it's amazing because like I got divorced and went through a lot of loss while I was working on the script. Bob had a tremendous amount of loss in his life. And the script just sort of kept evolving to reflect that. Um, and in a way, as difficult as it was, having 10 years to write and rewrite something, I think as simple as the movie, I, I would imagine seems there's a lot of little moments and sort of depth to it. It's funny, even Bob, who it's all based on his life and real work. He called me just a few weeks ago and was like, Hey, I was watching this, the movie again. And this scene with the glove box, that's from a poem I wrote. I'm like, yeah, man, that's you. You wrote that. And he didn't even realize it because it had been, it had sort of moved and morphed around so much and like landed in the middle of another scene that he wrote. So it's um, yeah, I think that movie really sort of reflects a lot of where I am as a person and a lot of Bob's own journey that I've watched the last 10 years. I think that's why it resonates with me as well. It, it, it came in a time in my life when I was going through transition and, and it's, it's a powerful thing and watching somebody go through something and what happens in the end and how they evolve as a person. I think you captured that brilliantly. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask a, a question here. Uh, that I think will be fun to answer, or maybe not. What's the craziest thing that happened on set to you over your span as a director? Any just bizarre, on, weird thing on this movie? Oh, on any movie. Uh, your experience as a director. This was a, so. I come from a documentary world, and like, I spent fourteen months with the busiest fire department in America in Detroit, and like running in and out of burning buildings, mm-hmm. and 
I made a movie out in the Aleutians in Alaska about a World War II battle that happened. They got stuck in like an unmarked minefield and would trip over unexploded bombs. And like I've gone on tour with gangster rappers and gotten in arguments with the ATF. And so like for me on this movie where I'm not kidding, like the crew was amazing. And, but every day they were like, every day they were like, that's the worst. That was like the most difficult day shooting I've ever had. Every day was like that. So wow. Like there was a day, so there's the sequence where he's camping alongside the lake and whistling. And then in the morning, he has an interaction with like a forest service trail crew and there's some stuff. So that day, which seems like a really mellow day was the worst day. Really? Like we got there and the forest service hadn't opened the gate. So we couldn't get in and all the like rigs piled up. There was a thunder and lightning storm. So you can't, there was a whole other sequence that I'd spent 10 years writing where he goes out into the lake and there's a lady bathing across the lake and she's a cancer survivor. And they have this like amazing moment, silent moment across the lake, but we could, and we cast a real cancer survivor. We worked with um, uh, a women's uh, breast cancer group in Oregon. And it was like, they were so excited because it showed a woman who's a cancer survivor just out like experiencing life, which she wasn't portrayed as a victim at all. And we couldn't film it. And instead, like there's a sequence where you see David's character, like fighting his way through in a really wide shot of this massive rainstorm. That was the rainstorm that happened. So we were, I was like, we're going to, we got to film something like get out there and let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. um, And that day, they had a tornado in Portland, which never happens. It touched down, went one block and dropped a tree on our production van. It was, was the only the thing that got I remember wrecked. That. I remember that day. And that was, I remember them calling about the tornado, like we, we, whatever, first tornado in Portland, it destroyed one thing and it was our van. And that was only <laughs> like the third worst thing that happened that day. Oh, geez. And here um, it comes <laughs> film production. Yeah, so that day also was there's a sequence where David's character falls in the water. Um, and that water is snow runoff. And we had to do the take twice. And it was so cold that um, for like two hours, David was borderline in shock. And we had medics there, and, you know, a hot, a warm shower for him and stuff. But still, he couldn't speak didn't know where he was for a couple hours. Like we were just like this close to, to sending him to the hospital. Um, that was, a, that was a crazy day. Well, and you're in the springtime. I do, I do some winter swimming out here in our rivers and uh, it's taken me a lot and I will literally go in 20 to 30 seconds and I'm out. And, uh, and I live on a river here. So I try to do it once a week, but I know that feeling, I know that pain and it's dangerous. And I think yeah. a lot of people take, for granted when they see these, oh, being an actor is so easy, no problem. I think it's probably one of the most difficult jobs out there, to be honest. Dude, watch. So he had a wetsuit on even, and it didn't. I mean, it, it it was still a mess. Like if you look at him and how beat up he is in that movie, what a great makeup person, but a lot of that is real stuff. I mean, there's a moment where he's dangling off the side of a like a I think it's a 350 foot cliff. That's really David Cross hanging on that cliff, and. Um, he wanted to do his own stunts. There's a thing where a giant tree almost crushes him. That's a real tree we cut down with a chainsaw. Like, uh, it's it, it's that's the thing I think is easy to gloss over because people just assume. 
that that's all digital. And it's not like if you see David Cross out there in the middle of some crazy thing, that's him. And I got to give the guy credit. Like we had stunt guys and all that stuff and they were awesome. But more often than not, David was like, Hey, you you want to see my face, right? Like, let's just, let's use me. Um, so hopefully that adds to the realism of, of the, of the film and the butterflies were, were, were not easy to deal with either. There's some, there's like 200 butterfly shots in the movie. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you, did you have a butterfly wrangler? Yeah, we did. So, um, of those 200 plus shots, only three of the shots, the butterflies digitally created because we needed it to like fly a certain direction at, at night, which was like, just never going to happen. So, uh, we had a guy who's like one of the premier butterfly people in, uh, the Pacific Northwest and, uh, his name's Dana. And those are all the real correct butterflies for each scene. Um, and they're real. In some cases we have the real butterfly there in the moment. And in some cases we filmed it without the butterfly. And then in a parking lot in Portland filmed it in front of a green screen to match the shots and, and put it in. Um, and you can't direct butterflies. It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted all the butterflies to be accurate. Cause I know all the lepidopterists, all the butterfly experts were going to see it. Um, right. and we also, you cannot film with a butterfly outside of its native habitat because if it gets away, you want, you don't want to introduce an invasive species and you have to film during the season. So it was, it was, and we filmed not knowing if it was going to work either, um, which was really bananas. Did you time when you filmed based on butterfly migration? We tried to, but the migration ended up late that year. So there are a couple cases where we have real butterflies uh, in particular, there's a thing called a ghost moth. That's a uh, lum- seemingly luminescent moth at night. He writes about it in the book. Yeah, such a yeah, great says, moment in the book. Great, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and then we had to go back like at the end of July during the migration window so that we could film with the correct butterflies during their season. Um, okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, the owl, there's a whole thing with an owl you saw in the trailer. That that's was the a, next thing I was going to ask, the owl. That's that's a real owl, and I'm not going to tell you what the owl does, but it did it. And yeah, that's fantastic. Nobody else has ever done that. I don't think anybody's going to do it again. And it was, that was really scary because sure. an, owl, an owl is like, I thought it would be light. Owls are heavy, and they have these long claws, and they're kind of trainable, but kind of not. They're kind of a wild animal. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Do you... Uh, what breed of owl was that? So uh, in the real story, it's a spotted owl and it is illegal to train and illegal to film spotted owls oh. as it turns out. Okay. I did not know that until we were up in Oregon getting ready to shoot. Uh, that's That scene to, happened to take place in uh, Oregon in an amazing piece of old growth forest. And um, so instead we got a, I forget what kind of owl. There's basically two trained owls in America and we got one and he flew out from Georgia. The owl, this is a true story. The owl flew on United okay. and the trainers flew on Southwest because the owl needed better accommodations than the trainers. <laughs> and That's so funny. the owl, the owl, um, and then we digitally made the owl spotted, but like everything you see the owl do, it did. So we had to train it to fly and do some stuff. And it turns out how you get an owl to do something is uh, 
they love mice, frozen mice. And an owl can eat like three frozen mice. So I basically had three shots at shooting that entire scene, which is a big scene where the owl does a bunch of stuff. So I'm like, what? I need to do more than three things. What are we going to do? Um, so there's a thing where they basically, there's a certain point where they're taking the frozen mice and they're throwing them at David and these slimy <laughs> frozen mice are hitting him in the face. And then I would use the piece after the slimy thing had fallen off. Oh, it was really, oh. there's a bunch of stuff in this movie that we went into like, are we going to be able, is this, everybody's saying this is impossible. How are we going to film this? And the owl, the owl was a, was a big one. Yeah. It's a cool scene. It's a very cool scene. And the timing of it is beautiful. It is beautiful when it happens. Again, I won't give that away, but where you place that scene in the movie, I, it just feels like the sequence of the movie. And, and like you said, at the beginning of our discussion, it's who wants to watch. I mean, I'm sure people do, but when you watch a guy go out into the woods and that's all you see, and you were able to go and create this conversation between Bob out in the woods and Bob's life before and during and possibly after um, the woods and intersperse them so that they actually build to the next scene in the woods. If you know what I mean, it really, mm -hmm. without saying this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I love that. And I, I would love to see more film that grabs that kind of timeline, you know, besides Quentin Tarantino, but, be, you know, the, where they manipulate the timeline. And I think that's very powerful, Tom. Very powerful. Oh, thanks. And I, I mean, I think that's my documentary training in that I try to cut things so they flow emotionally rather than chronologically. And... I mean, that's certainly the case in this movie where there's a big, I mean, it's overall a chronological film, but as you pointed out, there's stuff in her, in her weave throughout all of it. And the, you know, the finished movie is, I want to say it's 90, it's 106 minutes. I think um, like the original cut of it was like three and a half hours. There's so much stuff that's wow. not in the final movie. Um, and in a way that was kind of super sad, but also it was great because I had so many ingredients to play with and reorder and sort of, I mean, we couldn't reorder it much because he gets increasingly beat up. His glasses get cracked. So it's like, you can't put certain scenes out of order, but um, having all that additional material really was like making a documentary where you got to just sort of like slowly, like chisel it down into its final form. I think that's what's, um, most apparent to me as I watch this film is it, it feels like a documentary, like we said earlier, feels like the documentary combined with the fiction. Um, speaking of documentaries, I, I could talk about Dark Divide all day. We'll come back to that in just a second. But I have okay. to ask about your upcoming project. Uh, when, when I grew up in oh, eighth grade, 1989, NWA was the thing to listen to. And yeah. then came this group called Insane Clown Posse. What is going on, Tom? Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. It's your, the, it's your upcoming project. Is that right? Yeah. It premieres in like two weeks. Um, oh, I can't wait. So it's the complete other end of the movie spectrum. So for the last seven years, I, I and my co-director, Brenna Sanchez, have been making a documentary about and with this band called Insane Clown Posse, who, if you know about them, you definitely know about them. And if you don't, it's a band that's been around since the, the early 90s. They're, they dress like clowns, like John Wayne Gacy, like killer clowns, and they sing rap music, but like with horror movie lyrics and stuff. And they're typically voted the most hated band in America. 
and yet they have a million fans that love them. They're called Juggalos. And people hate Juggalos just about as much as they hate the band, which is a lot. And yet for 30 years, people, this has been, they're like deadheads, like their whole life revolve around the band. So uh, seven years ago, the band and all of its fan base got declared a gang by the FBI. This has never happened before that a fan base was declared a gang. Like, so at first the band, and we've been filming throughout this whole process. And at first the band thought it was a joke and like, Hey, we're gang leaders. Haha. And then they started getting these reports back from juggalos who were like having their lives turned upside down by this, because guess what? Once you're declared a gang member, get kicked out of the military you have an icp tattoo guess what getting kicked out of the military can't get a student loan uh can't get social services um so we had cases of like a guy whose son was taken away and put in a group home for six years because he had an icp poster on his wall and that's considered gang paraphernalia uh people who lost their jobs uh people who are just driving with a bumper sticker they get pulled over photographed they go in the gang database probable cause um guys arrested for minor infractions who get gang enhancements um it was crazy and so the aclu stepped in and backed a lawsuit against the fbi and it turns out the fbi has no criteria for what makes a gang it's kind of arbitrary and nobody's ever gotten off the gang list so we've followed this whole process with the band and we go home with the band which nobody's done before and spend time with different juggalos whose lives have been turned upside down. And at one point the ATF shows up and I won't tell you what happens, but it's not pretty. And um, uh, follow it as this winds through the court case and through the court of public opinion until the case ultimately has currently, it's one circuit beneath the Supreme Court. Um, uh, but we're, uh, the movie's uh, premiering at Fantastic Fest in Austin at the end of September. And then it will be out in theaters a little later this year. Um, so is it going to be mainstream theaters or is it going to be in independent house theaters? Uh, both. It'll Spoken. be in, it, it should be at a fairly wide, fairly wide release. Um, okay. And in fact, if you look closely in the dark divide, there are five insane clown posse references in the movie. And uh, are you a fan? Are you an insane? Are you a jungle? <sighs> I've never even heard their music before I made the movie. Okay. I will say like a lot of the music is super fun. It, a lot of their fans are people that have gone through really tough times and the, it's the only music that's speaking to experiences like they've had and they've created a family and something that's really positive. And I think it's insane to criminalize people because of the music they listen to. I mean, that's a slippery slope. Like, I live, I live in LA. You want to talk about Raiders fans? Like you want to talk about gangs that wear L that wear Dodgers caps or wear Cubs caps or have, you know, like it would be pretty easy to start declaring a lot of other groups, a gang, which is what the ACLU is most afraid of. Um, so it's one of the best concerts you'll ever go to. And the Juggalos are some of the nicest people I've ever met. All please and thank you. Hey, can we help you carry your gear? Not knowing who we are or anything. And I think it's a free country and they should be left alone to do whatever they want. Amen, brother. I, I couldn't agree with you more. How did you, how did you jump into this project? 
Um, so uh, Brenna and I made a Detroit firefighting documentary called Burn that that played like everywhere um, uh, a couple of years before we started the ICP thing. And the guys from the band had come to the theater and had seen the movie and were fans of it. They're from Detroit. And uh, we then read a New York Times story about them and them reaching this turning point. And uh, Brenna comes, she, she was editor for a number of major music magazines and comes from Detroit and was very involved in the music scene there. And just like reached out to them and said, hey, this seems like it would be an interesting documentary. And they said, can you have a camera crew here tomorrow? Because we're going to give a press conference that we're suing the FBI. So we just like jumped into it and have just been hanging in there with them as the story got like crazier and crazier and crazier. And you said seven years in the making? Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. And so people need to keep an eye out for the theater release coming up here soon. Um, good luck to you in Austin. That is amazing. Quick question. I want to read a quote from this book. This is where Bigfoot Walks by Robert Michael Pyle. And uh, I'm showing my age right now because I just put my reading glasses on. Uh, I um, mean, <laughs> It's what it is, isn't it? What are your thoughts on Bigfoot? And I can't do a cryptid uh, podcast or show without asking your own personal thoughts. We've hardly talked about Bigfoot. That I know. Was the point. That was the point. It's okay. I don't mind that at all. Um, because I think, I think we've talked about Bigfoot a lot, to be honest. We've talked about nature. We've talked about the Native Americans. Well, They're all intertwined. But Bigfoot specifically... That's correct. So before I read Bob's quote, tell me your thoughts on Bigfoot. Uh, and you know, the, we did it. We're a really unique Bigfoot movie. There's some amazing encounters that Bob had that I think are really powerful that were like verbatim in the movie. Um, and we tried to present that in the way they happened. Um, I've seen a lot of things in my life that I can't explain. Uh, I have not seen Bigfoot, but I've spent enough time in those forests to know that we're just like a little piece of the story. And just because we haven't discovered something yet doesn't mean it exists. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And there is such a huge body of evidence. Either it's the biggest conspiracy in history right. or, or something's going on. Let me read this quote real quick here and see what you think about it. Uh, this is near kind of the end where he's going through and he's talking about um, what he believes. Uh, it says, further analysis of the Patterson-Gimlin film, there have been several of these conducted in sophisticated media laboratories. They all agree within a narrow range of the mathematics, kinetics, and dynamics of the film and the subject it depicts, including the Superman stride length of some seven feet. The fluid movement of the muscles in the thigh, the heft of the breast, and other traits are stunning. In these days of CMG uh, graphic interface, it will be very difficult to make a case for the authenticity of any fresh photographic evidence. But given the technology of the times, that 16 millimeter motion picture camera rented from a drugstore, Patterson Gimlin remains for now the Teflon clue in the case. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's how many people it's like that that thing's like the zapruder film from the kennedy assassination so many people have looked at it and nobody's been able to pick it apart um i don't want to speak for bob but i'll speak for bob a little bit in that you know since the book was written um he's had other experiences that he 
I think now would tell you he's a believer. Um, and he's a scientist also. I mean, he's a Yale trained, you know, he's one of the, he wrote the Audubon field guide to North American butterflies. He's a nationally regarded, um, expert in his field, multiple awards. Yeah. Yeah. And what he would say is, Hey, there's a theory that there's a large hominid that lives in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. And here's how it operates and things. And nobody's disproven that. So as a scientist, you can't say that it's not true because it hasn't been disproven. Um, and again, for me, I, I just, I want to live in a world where Bigfoot's possible, um, where magic's that. possible and that. we don't know everything and we are surprised and we are connected to nature more than we realize or remember what's, what's bad about that. I think that that's a great place to leave this, Tom, is that there's mystery out there. And I think when somebody captures it the way you have, uh, it's fascinating to me. And I can't thank you enough. I have many, many skeptics who think I'm a crazy person uh, in my life. And that's okay. And one of those skeptics crazy person is the person that told me about the dark divide. And that's what's amazing to me because he says to me, oh, there's a Bigfoot movie coming out. <laughs> I went, what? I'll go check it out. And then I did all the research and I found out, well, it's not a Bigfoot movie, but it's, you know, and it's fascinating. And now that person is completely drawn into your storytelling, which is a very important thing because it's not, it's not a cryptid movie, you know, it's just a, it's a life movie. And I think that's powerful, Tom. I think you've done amazing things. Uh, it, it feels to me like everything came together for this film. You say that the weather went, you know, bonkers, but you were able to film. You had amazing cast. You had some incredible cameos. Like I said earlier, watching Cameron Esposito in a gas station is fantastic. She's amazing. Her. She's so great. So um, I just want to say thanks again, Tom, for being here. I wish I, I could talk to you for hours, but I am really looking forward to the ICP documentary and St. Clown Posse documentary. I'm going to be watching with bated breath, uh, having spent time with you and learning more about you. And I just want to tell listeners, you can rent or purchase The Dark Divide. Um, it is on Amazon. You can also go to The Dark Divide Film, I believe. Darkdividefilm.com. And there's a list of places where you can get it or watch it. Yes. And if you've ever been interested in the Gifford Pinchot Forest, that guy's story is actually really interesting, too. Or Mount St. Helens, uh, Mount Adams, you know, the Diamond, uh, Mount Hood, and then Mount Rainier. Uh, which I basically live in the foothills of Mount Rainier. There are some incredible, incredible Washington uh, cinematography. So do jump on and watch that. And the way Tom has captured it, not just being from the Northwest, but also having an affinity for growing up in that area, I think is spectacular. So Tom, thank you. I can't thank you enough. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me on the show and all the great perceptive questions. Absolutely. This Way Comes is a production of Old Mountain Media. Visit us on Instagram at PNW Sasquatch Shadows and Facebook at Old Mountain Media. 
something cryptid. This way comes. comes, comes.